0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age.
1: Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us.
0: It's always a pleasure, Stephen.
1: Today we're going to be talking about... Marriage we talked about this theme on numerous episodes, uh, numerous shows on the Fleming Foundation, but today's particular uh, focus is going to be on pre Christian marriage among the Romans, Greeks, and Jews. Obviously, if this is Christianity and classical culture, we want to examine both sides and we've spoken in earlier podcasts about the attack on marriage dr fleming we've We've talked in broad terms about what marriage is and what it's for, and today. We're going to try to get more specific and talk about Christian marriage in the light of these these other uh, civilizations I mentioned.
0: Yes, uh, I think uh, it's, we have to have the correct context for talking about things. As as I think we discussed in our earlier podcast, one of the problems in public discussion today of the marriage crisis especially uh, subjects uh, as divorce and same-sex marriage and before long it'll be trans transpacific marriage but one of the problems is, is that we that there's a tendency among christians to speak of marriage as if it was invented by the church And I think this leads to problems because then non-Christians say quite reasonably, well, I'm not one of you, so why should I have anything to listen at all to your arguments? It's a similar argument used in the case of abortion and homosexuality and other things which Christians uh, assume or have been taught are wrong And uh, and which, unfortunately, too many Christians believe that they are unique in this. We are not unique. Uh, Christ came to fulfill, not to overturn the old law. And the old law of the Jews on moral questions, on on the really big questions, the fundamental questions, is very similar to the old law of the Greeks and the Romans, who very powerfully influenced the development of the Christian church. And if you want to go farther afield, you could go to India and China and find a similar moral prescription, as C.S. Lewis tried to show in the little appendix to uh, one of his books where he, he he referred to the Tao, that is the the, the, the the natural way of life that man is supposed to live. So we want to avoid the snare of pretending to ourselves that marriage is something unique to Christians, something invented by the church. The easiest way to begin our search is to ask, well, what is marriage? That is, what is it for? If I showed you a hammer or a baseball bat, you could describe it. That would be fine. But if you if you left out the fact that a hammer is made for hitting nails and driving them into a plank of wood, you would miss the whole point of what a hammer is. Similarly, a baseball bat is not simply a club, but it's been sculpted and created to specifically for hitting baseballs. What what is what is marriage created for? Well, the most obvious reality of marriage, and this is true in all cultures uh, up to today, and that is the basic purpose is to supply grandchildren to one or both of the families of the of the, the married couple. Uh, by grandchildren, I don't mean just anybody who happens to share genetic stock, but legitimate heirs who will inherit the status and property of at least one of the families, because in some cultures you trace uh, property and civil status through the mother, most it's through the father, and in many cultures also, as in modern America, uh, it can come partly through both. And so you want to produce, you want your children to marry other people's children to beget heirs who will then themselves beget heirs and confer what I like to call uh, the human race's natural immortality. We live on in a natural way in our children.
1: Well, Dr. Funny, you know, the millennials are going to respond that that's all well and good for you fuddy-duddies that want to have children. But what about love? What about romance? What about long walks on the beach and orange blossoms?
0: Well, I like orange blossoms. And in fact, I used to like orange flower water and would give it to young ladies. Uh, but um, all of these things are fine. Marriage is the most intimate relationship that two human beings can enter into. And it is, of course, natural that, like all other powerful uh, developmental aspects of human life, like birth and death, that it should be attended by ceremony and tradition. And, uh, even, even the, the smell of incense, all, all of that's quite natural, but, you know, we don't think that the essence of being born is where is, uh, the baby is wrapped in pink or blue. The essence of birth is the birth itself, and the essence of marriage is the union of male and female uh, and uh, eventually the production of children. Um, If people aren't interested in that, um, which I see uh, increasingly people are not, I would strongly urge them uh, not to consider marriage. I used to have a friend who was, had been an Anglican minister, and then he decided that the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States had become the Church of Satan. I don't know where he'd get such a preposterous notion, but he became uh, instead of going in the other direction, he became he became very evangelical. But he was still a, a sort of a, a counselor at, at the University of North Carolina, and he would tell boys and girls who were shacking up and were thinking about marriage, he'd say if you're not thinking about this seriously as a lifetime commitment in the eyes of God, then uh, maybe you should just keep on shacking up. Wait wait for you to grow up. You're living in a state of sin, but it would be worse to desecrate marriage by pretending to be married. And in fact, one of the things I think that's gone wrong in our society, I mean, in, in the case of marriage, is that we think uh you know you can get married four or five six times you could shack up with uh, different partners you can you can do pretty much anything you want and if as long as you get a government license you could say I'm married well that nothing has been more successful in cheapening the notion of marriage than this uh this public attitude that you know it's one thing to say with St Paul better to marry than to burn but in in uh, in today we say uh, better to marry is than to have to jo- uh, file uh, uh, not to be able to file joint tax returns. I mean it's simply a question uh, of, of convenience.
1: So are you saying that without procreation there isn't a real should I use the term "real marriage"? You know, people say, "You know, a, you become a real woman when you become a mother." Uh, so, without procreation, no marriage. Uh, would you consider a childless couple not married in this construct?
0: Not really, as long uh, because l- look, there are uh, human life is uh, is complicated. It, it isn't as simple as any of us would make out. Because in trying to understand things, we reduce. Say um we, we reduce humanity or the picture of a man or a woman, we reduce it to you know a kind of lo- schematic line drawing. so even though the primary purpose of marriage is the pr- is the procreation of legitimate heirs, it serves other purposes. And a, uh, a couple that simply cannot have children, whether they know it or not, um, they're not doing anything wrong by uh, by getting married. And if they have no need to produce heirs, you know, in some in some cultures, uh, if you're a, if you're the son, you're, if you're the only son in a family, you have to produce heirs. And so it was legitimate to dissolve a marriage if it proved. To be uh, uh, impossible to bear children, so it's grounds for dissolution. But it is not. I wouldn't say uh, as some extremists have said, "Well, if you're not going to have children, you shouldn't be married," because you know obviously the the other the collateral benefits, you know the the the, the mutual kindness, the charity, the understanding, the companionship in marriages is, is important, and it's a humanizing quality. So the fact that, you know, everybody wants to have a pet, you know, because that's a natural thing. Well, uh, you know, marriage is real. If you have marriage, you you really don't need pets so much. Um, I remember once having a discussion with uh, one of my former colleagues and, and, uh, and our friend, Father Barber, and uh, the colleague was trying to explain why we'd have dogs, our dogs and cats would go to heaven. And he said, well, do you really th- do you think in heaven you will need the the relationship of a pet to a human being after all all your needs are now fulfilled? I thought it was a a strong argument. Anyway, so there the capacity for marriage though, that is uh, the uh, is it includes this uh the the uh normally in a traditional society the capacity is a many-faceted aspect, but it's one of the defining qualities of marriage, one of the defining prerequisites that you have to be capable of getting married. And one of those uh, uh, aspects of capacity is you have to be old enough to have sexual relations and conceive children, and you have to be capable and willing. So, for example, a man or woman... Who is maybe old enough and physically capable, but not interested. And if they go into marriage with that uh, as their attitude, well, that's not a real marriage. And um, in, in the Catholic tradition, of course, it, it's grounds for an annulment. But in, uh, in pre-Christian uh, Europe, uh, it, it was not considered a real marriage. You know, in our, among the more savage barbarians of Europe, like the Scandinavians, they would often uh, have, the girl would have to be pregnant. I'm not talking about the 12th century, I'm talking about the 19th century would uh, in In Christian Sweden, it was very common for the for the girls to get married th- three or four months pregnant because it showed that they were capable of producing children, sometimes even get married after the child Now this is clearly uh, a very rough pagan tradition, but at least it shows that in those days, although not today, uh, that Scandinavians knew some of the fundamental facts of human life. I saw the other day by the way that Denmark has a foundation. To uh, for, to support the you know the, the material needs of uh, teenage virgins, and they confessed sheepishly the other day they couldn't find any in in Denmark.
1: <laughs> I'm not. I, I wish I were making well, the, that. The, the poor Danes. They had a c- campaign some years back. You can Google it, uh, listeners. Uh, the Do It for Denmark campaign, <laughs> in which they were trying to encourage their citizens to have children, and it would involve. If you could prove that you went on vacation with someone and you got pregnant as a result of that, and they were, it's going to be a Danish citizen, you could get a bonus. So basically, the idea was you could go on vacation for free in order to conceive a child. And they have this—you uh, know—they've got grandma applauding, the sort of thing of you know, do it, do it for your country. Uh, and that also failed. Uh, these 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 European schemes, Doctor Fleming, you 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 laugh uh, at it when they, when they tell you about it, and then you laugh at the results. I'm also thinking the Norwegians had a scheme two years ago in which you could uh, contribute more in taxes than you owed to show how virtuous you are. And exactly 1,700 euros was collected from the entire country of Norway in the, I'd like to pay more taxes, please fund. So even the socialists at the 70% marginal tax rate don't, don't uh, believe in giving more than you owe.
0: It's like, uh, you know, in, I remember in the 60s, I forget who it was. It was somebody like Bettina Apthecker, but probably not she. But it was some notorious uh, co- academic communist. And uh, when she died, she left an estate state of many millions of dollars, all invested in the stock market, because she obviously believed what the, what capitalists said about uh, investment. And, uh, and, and uh, it may be evil, but she knew it worked. And uh, and I fear that's uh, that's all too true. So age and the cap. Uh, so in looking at capacity for marriage, but this is true both in the Greco-Roman and Jewish world on the one hand, and in the Christian world uh, on the other. So you have to be of the of right age. I think in the old age they they would set they would the Romans set like a minimum age. Of, I don't know thirteen. Uh, For a girl to get married, and it had to be rough because often it would be accompanied by a physical examination. If she hadn't entered puberty, then there's really no point in getting married. You know, by the way, this business about age requirements is very funny because, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a big scandal in Texas and Oklahoma. Some renegade Mormon group uh, was, um, you know, they were practicing polygamy, of course, which is, by the way, the least harmful of the aberrations of marriage. I mean, at least it's in the Old Testament. But people said, oh, if we have, you know, if we have same-sex union, someday we might have polygamy. Well, obviously, one man and two women is a lot better than two men. I mean, <laughs> from any any imaginable normal perspective. But so they, so it's, well, some of these girls were only 15 years old. Well, what's the age of what's the what's the marital age in Texas? The fact is that um it, it people don't seem to realize this, that every state has its own rules and they've changed over the years. With parental consent, there are states where you can get married at thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. I by the way, I believe in colonial Virginia it was twelve. Wow. And but, but with parental consent, all these uh, these uh, renegade Mormon families, uh, all the kids were all the daughters were getting married with with parental consent. Now whether the daughter was giving consent, that's another story. I, I'm not defending these people, but the outrage in the media was very amusing because apparently nobody in the U.S. media was aware that this was legal in half the states of the union. Now the worst states are um, on the, have gone the other direction. I think you you can't get married without uh, even in in places like Oregon at under 19 or something. They because they're such wise people, or 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 either that, or they're sitting around so smoked up all day long that they 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 can't get a marriage license. So age and the the, the age requirement is partly. Uh, related to capacity because you have to be able to have procreative sex to be, to, to, for it to be a real marriage. It also, as we'll see, uh, involves, um, as well as, as well as, uh, as well as, uh, capacity, you also, it also involves consent because people under a certain age cannot make a rational decision now. And we'll get to that in a second. the idea that, of course, that in America, the average 20-year-old college student is capable of making a rational decision about anything is, uh, is I think, uh, <coughs> one of those delusions that led to giving the 18-year-olds the vote. Okay, so age, the capacity for having sexual congress, and, but then if you, if you have a capa- marital capacity, in other words, if John can, marry, can get married to, to Amy, That means that uh, John and Amy are not related within a prohibited degree. Now, every society uh, frames its incest rules differently. I mean, you know, in in, uh, Ptolemaic Egypt, you could marry, uh, the king could marry his half-sister. The Roman rules are quite strict uh, on this. And the Jewish rules, which were different uh, from the Roman rules, were quite strict, but most societies have strong rules on incest. Why, why would they do this? Well, the, the general, you know, if you look at a textbook, it'll say, oh, well, the b- b- genetic defects and things are more likely if, 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 they're, if they're a recessive gene, the, the, the gene will be unmasked if two people carrying the gene have it. And that's true. It probably doesn't, it's probably not as dangerous as people think it is. But uh, far more important, and by the way the primitive early societies are stock breeder societies they know how to how to how to breed animals and and if you're a puppy breeder for example um, you know that breeding brothers and sisters is not a, is not a good idea they do except they do line breeding they're like 1 degree away but but
1: well, to 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 give you the modern spin dr Fleming in Iceland uh, which is a, a very fornicatory country yeah. they've invented an app Whereby uh, before you you sleep with someone, you can check to make sure you're not related uh, within whatever their prohibited uh, degree is, because because they're they're isolated and for centuries they're 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 all related to some uh, each other somehow. Yeah, no, they're
0: only like I don't know seventeen hundred people. So they they're all descended from a very small. Well, not all, but m- o- an overwhelming majority are descended from a very small peep- number of people. It's interesting, you know. I studied was. Was, uh, was established by conservatives, that is conservative Scandinavians fleeing the Christianization of Scandinavia. And uh, they eventually got converted. But if you look, as I, as I have done at the history of Iceland, the, 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 uh, there's wonderful stuff about blood feuds and, and uh, the, the, the kind of soap opera sex dramas and murders on Iceland, I mean they, they, they boggle the mind. And uh, and so they finally sort of got semi stable in the 18th and 19th century, semi stable. But by the in the middle of the 20th century, they 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 gave up all pretense, and now it's just whoopee time all day long. <laughs> uh, they're really incredible people. Uh, attractive people, which is very, uh, very strange. But, uh, but now to get back to, uh, to get back to, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the incest, incest rules, the, so the, avo- the avoidance of incest is important. And, and one of the reasons it's important is imagine a household in which it was okay for brother and sister to start having sex. I mean, you realize what this would do to a family,
1: mm-hmm. you know, with two,
0: uh, or, uh, uh, father and daughter and in the romans the romans were very clear the romans would have executed woody allen because if you have relations with a stepdaughter or somebody living as if she's your stepdaughter the romans said essentially the the, the social relationship is the same as a, as parental relationship and so they they there are some exceptions, but essentially the Romans treat adoptive relations as if they were natural. So uh, they were they were uh, very strict on this. And in fact, the the uh, Freud was wrong about almost everything, and he was wrong about the incest taboo, which he thinks that man invented because otherwise they were having promiscuous sex. But where Freud is sort of right is he under he did understand how dangerous and destabilizing it would be. To allow sexual relations to develop within a household, and almost all societies, Roman society in particular, but all, uh, almost all decent societies forbid any kind of uh, vertical incest—that is, parent and child, grandparent and child, grandparent and great great grandchild—that is always uh, that, that is that is for forbidden in uh, almost every society because you could you could imagine the with sick people, how that might be, uh, abused. So, uh, and so we have age capacity for, for procreative sex, the avoidance of incest, but another aspect of capacity is civil status because you just in most societies, it's not up to you to say what will be a legitimate heir that could inherit property, citizenship, and capacity for holding public office. That's up to the society to determine. So uh, Greek city states would often say uh, you have to be an Athenian or a Spartan or your children are illegitimate. You can live together and produce children, but they don't, they can't go through the court system and make legal claims uh, on the estate. And eventually Greek city states developed relationships, you know, treaties in which they would guarantee what the Romans would call connubium, the, the right of intermarriage. And that was part of the development of the Roman control over Italy was to develop this right of intermarriage, but first between Rome and the other Latin cities. And then it would bestow the Latin right on, uh, other Italian cities. And this would imply the right to usually confer the right to, to trade reside within Rome and, uh, and to, and to beget legal heirs with a, with a Roman partner. But, uh, This is something we have trouble understanding because uh, for us, marriage is as orange flowers and romance and, oh, promise me, or whatever they do now. I once went to a wedding when I was in college. It was a girlfriend's sister. And they sang, and one of the songs they sang at the wedding was, and the words go, today while the blossoms still cling to the, to the I'll drink your strawberries. I'll uh, I eat your strawberries. I'll drink your your sweet wine. Oh, but the whole point was we'll have a good time today, and then I'll be gone in the morning. And I thought, well, probably this song is prophetic, and it turned out to be. Uh, the, it was a, a a Unitarian wedding. To in fact, a, the husband was a Unitarian pastor. I think it lasted a year and a half. So, <clears throat> which is unfortunately what happened. So that so capacity, all of that. Uh, uh is one of the criteria for marriage and of course if you're capable of do, of doing your job as husband or wife then uh consummation is an important fact so consummation is the culmination of this aspect of the relationship that means that in some societies you know they the bloody sheets that hang out on the on the line or the couple withdraw to a bedroom while the people right outside the bedroom are, are drinking and feasting and putting their ear to the door. So it's coarse. And, you know, obviously, Stephen, you and I would not wish to participate in this kind of thing. But, but these, these crude coarse people, which, by the way, includes Renaissance Italians, these crude coarse people understood that, uh, that marriage had to be consummated.
1: Right. I can just imagine there's sort of applause out there from the mother-in-laws and the mother when, <laughs> when, when, when it seems that uh, activities have commenced or, or something along those lines. And
0: they don't even need a—they don't even need a certificate from the Norwegian
1: government. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't—I don't know if my generation would simply die from from shame having to participate in something like that. But, but there it is. Uh, so. You've discussed all of these criteria to review for our listeners, age, capability and willingness to, to engage in, in sexual relations, uh, making sure that there's no incest, and civic status. Yeah. What other basic criteria? One is uh, almost universal,
0: although it's some, in some cultures more honored in the breach than the observance, is consent. It, ha- it is supposed to be from the Christian from the Christian point of view. This is this is uh, non-negotiable. The both parties have to consent to the uh, to the union, uh, and threats, coercion, etc., um, are 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 not permitted. Um, th- there were in uh, say in among the Greeks, Romans, and Jews, it was a little bit more iffy. The husband had to consent. The wife, uh, the wife, you know, we the phrase being given in marriage was perhaps uh, sometimes too literal, and of course, in uh, even in Christian Europe down to fairly late, uh, you could lock your daughter up, and give her bread and water, or you know, the uh, in the uh, we're having a little discussion on, on the Web's Fleming Foundation website on the what I regard as the greatest novel ever published. Uh, I Promessi Sposi, the the betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni, the the, e- the most evil character in the book is the nun of Monza, and how did she get e- so evil? Well, she was a spoiled, selfish girl. Her aristocratic parents decided they didn't have enough money to provide a dowry, so they stuck her in a convent against her will and wouldn't let her get married. And this is also not supposed to be allowed in any Christian community, but these people had power. So the notion of consent is often abused, but it is still uh, at the heart of a Christian marriage, and it was present, not as strongly enforced, but it was still generally uh, thought of. You know, it's interesting that I once read a linguistic article about uh, how words can be reality. And the best example I remember is you know, in the Anglican marriage ceremony. The, uh, you know, "Wilt thou, John, take, you know, Cecilia as your, you know, beloved wife to have and to hold through richer, riches and etc. etc.?" And the answer is, I will. In saying, I will, you are not merely consenting to this legal relationship that makes you man and wife. In saying, I will, you become a husband. In other words, you become a different person. Can you think of another example of where words, uh, words may not be sufficient, but are necessary for changing sort of the metaphysical status of something,
1: well, for Catholics, we think of sacraments, yes, exactly, yes
0: exactly, so the whole idea of the exchange of vows, <clears throat> and exchange of rings, which by the way goes back to the Romans and uh, and the Greeks, this this note, these 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 words imply a kind of sacramental view uh, of marriage, a, a crude one, admittedly, a crude one. And when we get to talking about uh, divorce uh, and uh, remarriage and such subjects next time, uh, one of the things I want to emphasize is that in classical, in in archaic and classical Athens and in Republican Rome, marriage divorce was very very rare. It is only in as societies degenerate that uh, that. First among the, the upper classes, and then it spreads throughout the society. Do uh, you, you find divorce taking over? But for example, we we uh, you read, you pick up almost any book on ancient marriage, and it'll tell you, well, Athenians, uh, all a man had to do is repudiate his wife, or all she had to do was do X, Y, or Z. And uh, so this is classical Athens, sixth, fifth, fourth century. It was very easy. Uh, ask the textbook author, or if you ever meet somebody who tells you this, can you give me an example? Maybe, you know, like from classical literature, Greek tragedy, Greek comedy. Can you give me an example in, in among the historical writers, a document, or one of? The, or we have all these court cases of every kind from the from the Athenian orators. Give me an example. Well, there aren't any. The big example is Alcibiades. His wife, he, was, he was quite a playboy. I mean, he was disgusting. And his wife decided she'd had enough. So she went down to the proper archon. And, of course, she's been, she was a very uh, rich aristocrat like her husband. She went down to the archon to, to register the, docu- the bill of divorce. And he knew this was coming. He went there. And at the sight of many witnesses, took hold of her hair and dragged her back home. And no one, including her parents, objected. Why? Because divorce was inconceivable. So, uh, so a, lo- a lot of a lot of nonsense is written about about pre-Christian societies. Yes, under in, the, in in later on in Hellenistic age or in Imperial Rome, the upper classes engaged in a lot of hanky panky, and and, and and divorce became common. Although there were periods in which it became less and less common. Like under the Antonine. so consent, cons- and if you haven't given consent, that is grounds for annulment. And consent also implies mental competence. You know, uh, retarded people are uh, not so, and shouldn't be allowed to get married because they can't make a rational decision to say yes. I I know what marriage is, and we're and we are getting married. I've I, I've known of cases of annulment where uh, <laughs> some some the, the the justification for the goofball husband is that he didn't know he was he had to be faithful, or he didn't know that this meant having children. Now uh, this is like the Italian custom, which was in the late 20th century to get divorced. You would you would before marriage you would write a letter saying you weren't sure you really understood what marriage was and whether you were taking it seriously enough and you send it to your lawyer, and so that if any point comes in your marriage that uh, you want to get out, then this this letter can be shown, uh, to sh- can be produced to show that you entered into it with bad will. You know, there's a, there's a nice parallel passage in Dante. You know, the Pope I forget which one is talking with a mercenary commander. And he says, tell me how I can, uh, I want to take uh, Tusculum or, or Tivoli or whatever and conquer. And so he said, well, I know how you could do it, but I'm not going to tell you. Well, why not? He said, because it's sinful. and I go to hell. So he said, listen, you have a pardon from the Pope. I'm the Pope. You know, I can, I can, I can get you out of this. So the Pope promises him he won't go to hell. And then so he tells them, you, you make this immoral pact with this city, and then when they're not looking, you 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 crush them and kill everybody. So this happens, and so this man is dying on the battlefield, and the angel comes down to grab him and 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 uh, the, to save him from the demons, and and the, the angel says, no, no, he belongs to us because he has a papal pardon, and the devil the, in, in question makes some cynical remarks, saying the the I'm very loosely translating the fact that he sought absolution before the act makes it of no value. Mm-hmm. In other words, his absolution doesn't count. So writing these kinds of letters, consent and non-consent have to be at least in moral terms and in spiritual terms have to be in, in, in good faith. Finally, finally, in most healthy cultures, you enter into a union, a marital union, with the expectation of permanence. Now, of course, there are there are legitimate grounds for annulment. No, no children are produced. Uh, the, one of the parties really didn't give consent, or you find out you're too closely related, really, and you shouldn't produce children. Or there are, or, or uh, in other societies, abandonment, for example, it justifies divorce. Does it in, Christ, in Christian terms? It's an argument whether it justifies remarriage, and we'll, we could we can talk about that at nauseum because, unfortunately, if you read uh, 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 books of catechism, they give really cut and dried answers. But if you look at the history of uh, the church is teaching on it. They're, they're, it these, these hard cases uh, are, are even harder than, than they look at first. But, but it's important to get the big picture. And the big picture is the expectation of an enduring union. If you enter into a marriage thinking, I can, I can get divorced in a couple of years, probably you're not entering into it with a the, with the spirit that makes it a real marriage. There's a famous a book called The Theory of Cooperation, which the author proves that uh you have to have a certain attitude in going to end into war negotiations or whatever i play fair then the other party will play fair and then this will work out but to have this kind of relationship the trick is you have to expect to have to meet this person again because otherwise you'll be tempted to cheat well the poor author uh, mr axelrod I think from the University of Michigan, it occurred to him at some point, well, gee, doesn't this apply to, to to marriage? I mean, if I know I can get out of it with through some legal chicanery, doesn't this mean that the marriage is less likely to last? Oh, no, 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 no. He assures the reader, this is not the case. This is the exception to his general general rule. And I, I wonder if we investigated uh, the professor's uh, marital history, if we would find some reason for that. But, so, permanency. So, this was, in essence, what I've just described was the Greek, Roman, and Jewish precursors of Christian marriage. Each tradition has its own peculiarities. The Jews, for example, were freer in their divorce laws than Greeks or Romans. Uh, and in fact, so they, they, they were scandalous. You could, you know, the rab- there were rabbis who said, if you, you can, you can repudiate a wife if you don't like her cooking, or if you found somebody you like better. And of course, uh, the Jews never officially gave up uh, polygamy, uh, except in parts of Europe, like in in, uh, Western Europe, Russia, Western Europe, and there were a period in Spain. But uh, Judaism in general has never repudiated uh, polygamy and middle eastern Jews this is a problem in Israel uh, Jews coming from say Tunisia or something moving into israel they're often uh, they're often uh, polygamous unions and the israeli government is essentially their laws are European laws, and so that, that, that they have this tremendous uh, uh, conflict so the the Romans were very sticky on consanguinity laws and on citizenship laws, but essentially Essentially, these were the attributes of marriage, which Christianity took over and made clearer, but did not uh, repudiate.
1: So, and obviously transitioning to the Christianity part of Christianity and classical culture, we want to take that on. But before we do, we should probably deal with the fact that some people consider Christianity be fairly anti-marriage. And let's deal with that objection, Dr. Fleming. Is that true?
0: No, I think that a lot of this comes from a selective reading of St. Paul, you know, and Paul grudgingly says at one point, better to marry than to burn. A hard, I think
1: hardly them, a ringing endorsement.
0: <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of people think that burn there uh, simply means a burn in lust, but it probably means burn in hell for being a fornicator. The, the, verb, uh, the verb seems to indicate being burnt up. Rather than simply to be in, in, in inflamed, um, the if you look at the whole context of of, uh, of Christian marriage, of if you look at uh, in the Gospels, which is I think the place to begin, not to begin with Paul. Um, for example, there's the uh, early in his ministry Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and when he asks her to go get her husband she says she has none and his response is cutting, thou hast said well that thou hast no husband for thou hast had five husbands and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband so uh, it's, this, is, this is one of the first references to marriage in, in the Gospels other than the marriage of, uh, of Mary and Joseph which is an unusual marriage the question is: Has she had five divorces? Has she been widowed? Is it a combination? Uh, is she a victim of the leverate? That is, you're supposed to marry uh, uh, a brother, is supposed to engender a child by a, uh, a brother who has uh, whose wife hasn't given him a child. Um, if Jesus ever did preach against marriage as an inferior condition, there is no sign of such an attitude in the Gospels. His first miracle, the turning of water into wine where uh, where it is his first the first revelation that Jesus can do such a is a very important event in the history of the universe. It was a wedding which he was attending with his mother as a guest, and of course, as Catholics like to point out uh uh, uh, our Lady's uh, injunction to the to the wedding is whatever he says, do it, which is uh, a fairly good piece of advice. Uh, elsewhere, he uses weddings as a metaphor for the heavenly kingdom.
1: Well, Christian, well, was, was our uh, Dr. Fleming was Dr. Fleming, uh, was uh, was Our Lady also uh, indicating that this is how marriage usually goes, as the woman just tells you what to do and it, it just happens.
0: Well, you're not married, Stephen, but as soon as you
1: are, you will find out. <laughs> I, I, I'm, just, I'm just making an observation. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, it's, it used to be a – I remember you have these conversations. In England, women had all sorts of laws in the, in the, at the end of the 19th century to protect their rights. And in France, they had no protection. Which, co- question, which country were women more powerful in? Answer, France. Because <laughs> French women controlled their husbands by being women. English women controlled their husbands through the legal fiction that they were more or less the same as men. Mm. It's the hand that rocks the cradle that rules the world, not the, not the, not, not, not the hand that, that, uh, that uh, types on the T-board.
1: Mm.
0: So throughout the uh, New Testament, Christ used weddings as a metaphor for the heavenly kingdom. Christians are supposed to look for his return as if they're bridesmaids awaiting the arrival of the groom. That's Matthew 25. Even more explicitly, he compares the kingdom of heaven with a wedding banquet in Matthew 22. So the human institutional marriage, divinely ordained for Adam and Eve before the fall, as he tells us when talking about divorce, you know, (laughs) Moses gave you divorce because he knew you had hard hearts. I tell you, from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, you couldn't get divorced, and in fact, divorce and remarriage constitutes uh, adultery. But so this, so Christian marriage is not simply a practical convenience, it's an earthly anticipation of the heavenly bliss that the faithful will enjoy after resurrection. Paul enjoins husbands, even, even the, the, the misogynistic Paul, as he's often, I think, falsely accused, he enjoins husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. What could be a, what could be a, again, it's the same comparison, the same metaphor, a statement remarkable, I think, for both power and richness. Uh, The verb, the verb to love here is not to have sexual love, but agapan, and the noun agapi, where they weren't used normally for erotic passion, but for affectionate concern, translated universally into Latin as caritas, charity, dearness, Christian love. So the love of husband and wife is that Christian charity which we are supposed to learn and to grow into. And so this whole notion that, uh, that Christ and the apostles were opposed to marriage is a select, based on a selective misreading of scripture. Part of the misreading is today, Wanting to prove that Christianity is a brutal, inhuman cult that 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 that, that uh, despises women, part of it comes from the fact that uh, Catholic marriage manuals are always written by celibate clergy who perhaps don't have the best take on uh, on the institution.
1: Well, as you come on to celibacy, Doctor Fleming, and back to Saint Paul, as you were saying, there is an there is an ideal of celibacy, and uh, and in the early church, we we probably see a lot fewer people getting married as a ratio of the church itself than maybe we see in later ages. That is certainly
0: true. And first of all, we know from, uh, from reading uh, Paul in particular, he expected the second advent of Christ to be in the near future. And really, there's, the, people were supposed to spend their time in, in preparation for the second coming. And to a large extent, uh, even if he got the date wrong, it doesn't really matter. I mean, this is what human life should be directed toward. But in the short run, uh, many Christians got the idea that, well, you know, if I'm winning the lottery tomorrow, I don't have to go to work today. You know, and so there's no there's no point in in arranging a decent life in the present that is through marriage, having children, because all of this is going to become I- I- irrelevant. Now we know from the Acts of the Apostles that Christians try, that many Christians, the Christians in Jerusalem, tried an experiment of living uh, living together communally and sharing their property, but you know they gave up primitive communism, which was voluntary, not state imposed, they gave up their communism very quickly, It didn't work. And they gave up uh, the celibacy because it didn't work. And obviously, if you act like the Shakers, there are no more Shakers in the world because they didn't produce children. Um, now what uh, what they misunderstood was, and I think it's clear clear to anybody who looks at the text and looks at Christian history. They misunderstood what was a council of perfection for, a, for a, a small group of people who would eventually become cl- monastic or cloistered clergy. Not even not not even all clergy, because there's no necessity for a parish priest to be celibate. There's a rule in uh, in under the see of Rome that this is so, but it's not true in the Orthodox Church, nor is it true in, among Uniate Catholics. So it. It is there it is a question of it's desirable for the for the better order of the church and the better order of the life of the pastor, but it is it is not a requirement. But for the but for the monastic clergy, it is an absolute requirement, but they also have to give up property. So the, the, the image of the primitive church described in the Acts of the Apostles, it's a model for the development uh, of monastic life, and it's a very beautiful and high ideal, which however, is not uh, possible for most of us. And so, uh, even Paul himself speaks, when he speaks generally about marriage, he speaks in general terms, with the anticipation that most people will, in fact, become married. And if you look at, for example, what what are the rules for being a deacon? Well, it's got to be a man with—we'll talk about this later because it involves divorce law— a man who has had only one wife and a man who is a good husband and father and takes care of his own family. Even Gentiles do this. How much more ought we ought to do?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So the anticipation, the anticipation is— that most of us, most of us, are going to find our social fulfillment in a, in a normal life, uh, which is married, and that there will be a small group of people dedicated to, to the to the highest
1: things, to the first things, and those are uh, that's the monastic clergy. Well, and as you say, Dr. Fleming, the practices of the early church are are not necessarily perfection or even an ideal. I'm thinking about Pope Pius XII's encyclical Mediator Dei, where he refers to a dangerous archaism, this idea that, well, we have to go back to the beginning, and that's when it was pure. And that some of the developments, in fact, many of the developments in Christianity and and many other cultures um, breed, uh, actually bring more perfection and bring more beauty. And we see this, obviously, in, in the a traditional Latin mass uh, which was probably different in it it had Gregorian chant which wasn't around in the time of the apostles it had some some more developed vestments which may not have been around at the time of the apostles but these- oh, there would have
0: been very very little of what's in the in the mass today would have been uh not, the the canon of the mass didn't really take take full shape but roughly until about the time of Gregory the Great mm-hmm. so which is 500 years you know five 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 and a half centuries later so yes what in what other human institution, for example, in the history of science, do we say that the greatest math astronomers were the ancient Babylonians who first began to take a squint at the stars? Mm. Or, or do we say that the child represents human perfection, you know? Right. so the, this notion that that at the primitive most primitive early stage of development is the highest. That that I think this is this is a it's it's a it's delusional. It's a, it's a, it's an attempt to find a golden age in the past, which uh, hardly ever exists. It's one thing to say that what Christ and the apostles tell us, you know, we are 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 unchangeable verities. That is certainly true, and nobody would, nobody uh, no Christian would uh, quarrel with that. But the institutions cre- created temporarily. In response to that, though they are going to develop like like any any partly human, partly divine form, the the inspira- that inspiration is the Holy Spirit. One of the the, the the discussions I often have with with good Protestant friends is they they say that the Bible has everything. I said, well, when our Lord was getting ready to leave, did he say, "I'm leaving behind a book"? Well, show me where he says, "Read the Bible every day." What he says is, I I have to go away to come back and go away again, but I will, because I have to do this to leave you the Holy Spirit, who will will remind you of what I have said and clarify everything else. So in other words, the Holy Spirit working through the church over time will make things clearer to us than was clear to the apostles themselves.
1: When we think about the idea of grace building on nature and your discussion of what, how the, the classical cultures viewed marriage, there seems to be some perfection going on with the Christian ideal, and that's in the idea of a married couple being of one flesh. Can you talk about that development, Dr. Fleming? Yes.
0: It's, I think it's often misunderstood as, uh, as a kind of ideal. Paul makes it clear he said the context for his car- comment is he said well don 't go out to prostitute with prostitutes because you become one flesh with them so i mean the, and, and uh, what he 's saying is that sexual congress and especially followed by procreation and and of course he is is going back in there are passages in the Old Testament that anticipate this. Um, that that somehow man and woman through this act become one one flesh. Well, it's literally true because a child is fi- genetically fifty percent father and fifty percent mother, roughly. Roughly, there's a maybe one degree difference here or there. But so, it's, we're, we're, so we so the child. This is why this is why children are so important to marriage. The child represents the, full, the, the physical reality of being one flesh. And it's interesting, there are passages in uh, non-Christian writers like, like the Epicurean Lucretius or Plutarch, where they have precisely the same sentiment because if you think long and hard about what marriage is, that the essence of marriage is to be one flesh. Now in Christianity, St. Paul sees to the heart of the matter, and 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 pulls out you know this 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 plum of doctrine, which then allows us to understand marriage permanently. But it, again, it is not an ideal. It's a it's a, it is a statement of fact, and of course, the fact that as we said earlier that. Uh, uh, a single man and a single woman become a marital unit, a one flesh man and wife, by by assenting to marriage and then uh, consummating the marriage. This is this is in, in, this makes it uh, sacramental, and this is where I think one of the it, it's not something that the church invented. I think it's clear that marriage is, by its na- very nature, sacramental. Even it, it is headed in that direction, even before it's Christian.
1: So, if we if we think about it in terms of a sacrament, we alluded to the idea of something changing metaphysically when you say some words. Uh, does does that mean that? For marriage must be done in a church ceremony according to all the rubrics? Well, I think if we look—the simple answer is no.
0: If you—early Christian marriage, say marriage at the time of the apostles or for the—let's just say the first hundred or two hundred years, it would have been whatever your tradition was—Jewish, Roman, Greek—you um, would have had a regular marriage tradition stripped of—ceremony—stripped of—, ceremony, stripped of well, for example, if it were a, a Roman thing, you were supposed to take the auguries. Now, Christians aren't going to take the auguries. That is, trying to look at the signs that tell you uh, the future. I mean, this is this is fortune telling. This would be forbidden and uh, or a uh, you know a prayer to Venus or Aphrodite would be forbidden, but otherwise you know the exchange of rings, the vows, the costumes carrying the bride over the threshold, the banquet all of these things were normal <clears throat> and uh because the ancients they had temples, but they didn't have churches in the sense of places where people got together uh, you the, in a in a temple sar- sacrifice. The, the the priests and and they were all lay priests they you know they were not people committed to this as a way of life they it was like a, a ceremonial function they could carry out the priests were there at the temple and everybody else is outside you know you didn't go inside the temple to to uh, to, to to worship or take part in, in a ceremony so so marriage ceremonies were done at home And uh, it would have been, they would have then in a Christian home. If both families were Christian, they would have exchanged their vows in more Christian terms, read scriptures. But again, the capacity for marriage, consent to marriage, consummation of marriage, that is what made it a marriage and it's what made it a sacrament. Clearly, uh, it was desirable to have a priest there. And as time went on, in many parts of Europe, uh, it was considered de rigueur to have to have the marriage in a church, and the church encouraged it strongly. However, in medieval Tuscany, down to down to uh, even beyond the Council of Trent, because the Council of Trent said then that made it clear that marriage then had to be t- in a church conducted by a priest. But in le- late medieval Florence. We know uh, we know from all that, that it was rarely done in a church. Uh, um, Saint Antonino, one of the great figures in the uh, in the history of the Tuscan Church, Antonino uh, uh, has a presides over a legal case of a uh, of bigamy, and the question was what was it a legal marriage? Well, it was a man and a woman. They exchanged vows. Was there did a priest do anything? No. There was a priest present, but he was not um, not involved in actually uh, in blessing the union. He may have said a prayer or something. So, it, the church tried, was faced with the problem of trying to eliminate disorders, improperly carried out marriages, uh, or clandestine marriages, and men who were seducing women. There were a lot of a lot of problems in this, but. There was no necessity of performing this in a church until, until uh, say, the church started cracking down. The crackdown was in the, under Innocent III in particular, started really, really radically redefining uh, what was necessary for uh, for a legitimate Christian marriage. Nonetheless, nonetheless, In various pockets of Europe, this this took a long time to develop, and although it's a good development, a positive development, a a development that should be welcomed to make it more official, more formal, uh, more beautiful, to have it done in a church, it isn't the essence of marriage.
1: Hmm. Well, that might be the essence of today's conversation, Dr. Fleming. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss before we end today's episode?
0: I'll just end with this with a sentence maybe that, you know, the Christianity transformed marriage, but the transformation was not just in the external form, but also in a deeper understanding of the institution. Jesus tells us uh, in the Gospels that marriage had once been perfect in, the, in the, between Adam and Eve in the garden, an indissoluble, indissoluble union between a man and a woman, and over the years this had been corrupted. And that he, he in preaching his gospel, uh, eliminated this corruption and gave us a model for all time. But let's never forget both sides of this argument. And that is, first, that Christianity perfects marriage, but that marriage
1: had been created initially
0: to be perfect.
1: I think that's an excellent place to end. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Fleming. All right.
0: Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation, All Rights Are Reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, Make the most of a dark age.